Welcome to the Appalachian Folklore Podcast, a wild hike through the history and migration of the folk culture, stories, traditions, and haints hidden in the hills and hollers of Appalachia. I'm your host, Aaron Bobick. Hey folks, welcome to this month's episode of the Appalachian Folklore Podcast. This is the second part of my first ever two-part episode of the Appalachian Folklore Podcast, my conversation with Dr. Ed Karshner. Hopefully you've listened to part one because we do just jump right in here to the second half of the conversation. It was such a wonderful and lengthy conversation that I felt the need to break it into two parts, lest you folks would be sitting here with my voice and Ed's voice ringing in your ears for, oh, I don't know, an hour and 45 minutes. I would like to thank Ed again for the wonderful conversation. It really stimulated my synapses and got my academic brain firing again, which hasn't happened in, oh, about 20 years or so. And to be able to talk about Appalachian folklore, storytelling, and witches and ghosts and fairies with someone who has the same passion and interest in those subjects as I do. So without any further delay, I'll go ahead and jump right in to the second half of the conversation I had with Dr. Ed Karshner. If you could talk a little bit about granny witches and the stories, the, the, the stories that you've heard in, in the folk traditions around those practices, and then we can move into how those stories have, have, the diaspora of the stories there. Um, I, I, I try to separate that, that thing with granny women uh, from witch lore in Appalachia because the, because what you have, so we'll start, let's start with witch lore first. So you have, you have the, that, that, that fantastic deep uh, witch lore that, 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 that there's really a part of Appalachian culture. Like we were talking about witches, ghosts, and, and, and boogers. And boogers, right? yeah. Those are, right. Those are our three, you know, those are our three big things in Appalachia. And, um, and so usually with like what, when you, and, and here I'm going to, I'm going to rely on the Leonard Roberts collection. So that I, where I studied last summer and Bria college, lots of stuff there about which a, a lot of witch stories. So you have the Jack tale, soft doll. So you have these witches and, and to go back to, um, there's one variant in the Leonard Roberts collection of the soft doll story where it's not Jack, but it's just a, a, um, it's just a, a, a random minister, um, who's going to, uh, solve this, but, but in that story, there's a there's a there's a fascinating little line about uh, the the mill owner owned a lot of mills and his wife wanted him to get rid of all of them but one, and oh. so and and so she so that becomes like her motivation. Why is she a witch? Well, she's trying to she's trying to usurp the 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 authority of her husband, right? That he she wants right. him to do something, he won't do something, and so she revert she makes use of witchcraft to to get this mill shut down right and then presumably would do that until there's just one left so she was going to get her way through these nefarious means so you have that you have that kind of tradition um then there's the and we had talked about this i think uh, when we were dming each other then there's the tradition of of witches who want to um do randomly do something to the family so like you know witch milk which is a big one that's right. always the that's always the, they're always witch and milk and icy has a and i can't remember who she said Someone had told Icy that that they thought that that came, and this kind of fits with the Jack tale, the idea of like up, disrupting the means of production, right? That the yes. that the that's what the witch is wanting to do. So the witch milk, they'll make your pig sick, they'll make your cattle sick, waste away, all of that kind of stuff. 
Mm -hmm. or and i and i lump this in that so, so lump this in with that the second group they'll also come after your kids right that um then right. you've got your, your child is deathly sick well that child has been witched and what's interesting in the leonard roberts collection where he's collected all of those witch stories from that second category so the first being the jacktail you know uh just you know uh evil women sort of a thing Right. Then you've got like these these uh, the witch tales that that attack this idea of social standing, like in terms of like your your job or your children. But what's mm -hmm. interesting about that second category is the witch is so with the first one, first category, the witch always turns out to be the wife. And the second category, the one that's witching the milk, that's witching the pigs, witching your kids is always the mother in law. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so so it's and then you have the third category um which is the idea of just sort of the random old lady. And this, ha this gets into the, what we were talking about, this idea of should, uh, where the witch, uh, an old woman shows up at your doorstep and she needs to spend the night. And uh, you tell her you don't have, you know, no, there's no room. And then bad stuff starts happening in your house, right? So there's mm -hmm. this idea of uh, turning down hospitality. Or there's also another story in uh, the Leonard Roberts collection where they do allow the old lady to stay, but then she keeps coming back, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and, they're, and they're afraid to turn her away and and when they finally do then the daughter gets sick and then there's and I'll I'll come back to that in just a minute but okay. and then and then finally there's my favorite there's the fourth category which is the uh hag-ridden stories yes. that you know and I love those I actually I have a story um I wrote a folk horror story about that it's going to be in still the journal um in its fall thing but but that's a great, but you know, the idea of where you, the, the witch bridle, the witch will yep. throw this bridle over a person and then ride them all night. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, so those are great stories. So, so those are those, those really interesting witch tales that talk about culture in one way or the other. And, and again, so, and so here's the interesting thing about this. This gets me into my male female kind of dichotomy that, that you see uh, happening or that tension in these stories. So you have, the witch is always a woman. You know, the, the wife, the mother-in-law, some random old lady or a widow, whatever. And then all of these stories, you know, and I, and I guess this would be Jack in the case of the Sop doll story. But um, then you will have a, the, the, the people will know that they're witched and they need somebody to get the hex off of them. So they require what's in the, what, in the Leonard Roberts collections. They talk about a witch doctor, which is mm -hmm. then always a man. And that's then a man who's going to come in and undo this sort of supernatural negative power of the feminine, you know, to, for me to right. wax all, you know, uh, academic here. But, but I find that fascinating that that's, that's baked into those stories. You know, this idea of, of, of men are, men are producing things. Women are somehow trying to, certain women are trying to subvert that. And it requires a specialized man to come in and undo yeah. that. So I have two I have two short stories coming out in the fall and my and both of them have a have a creepy minister antagonist <laughs> and my son and it wasn't intentional and I wasn't even thinking about it and my and I my son is always my my son is always my first reader so mm -hmm. you know I get one I get one done and and he takes a look and so he said he said dad why are you writing about creepy ministers all of a sudden I'm like <laughs> I don't know <laughs> I thought well that's 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 that folklore right I've I've been I've been in, I've been immersed in this research about about what we just what I just talked about, and so in my mind, and so I think that I am trying to to some way undo that, resignify that, and then that's so I'm creating variants, and I think sure, and that's a that's another issue that I talk about a lot too is the way that like contemporary Appalachian fiction is just uh, resignified folklore, 
Appalachian folklore. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so like the David Joy, Megan Lucas, Ron Rash, in a hundred years, people will be talking about them as folklore, you know, maybe not necessarily as literature, you know, it's just that continuation, these variants of that. So that's kind of my, that's my witchy framework. Um, I don't know. Do you have it? You want to, how do you want to get in deeper in that or? or... Oh, absolutely. I do. (laughs) There's, yeah, there's a lot of stuff in there because of my interest in fairy folklore. Uh, and we're probably not going to have answers to any of these questions, but it's oh, at least no. going to be fun to talk about. You spoke about how the the witch doctor, the fairy doctor in UK lore is usually a man. There's a very mm. famous one in Ireland, uh, Biddy uh-huh. Early, that I'm not sure if you're f- uh, familiar with the tales of, of Biddy Early, Mm-mm. but uh, it's one of one of my favorite storytellers. Sorry, Owen, is a gentleman by the name of Eddie Lenahan. And oh, he I is, like him. Yes, he's an absolute national treasure, and what he a lot of his work has been on on Biddy Early, and yeah, it's okay. in search of Biddy Early by Eddie Lanahan, but she was one. She had a magic bottle, and she would if the if the fairies were troubling you, she would look in her bottle and tell you to do this thing, whatever it was, and your ailment would go away. The fairies would quit bothering you. And that was just one woman I could think of. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there are plenty more and someone will hopefully write in and tell me their names so I can do more research. But the over here, as I was saying with uh, the the Puritans that came over, by that point, it was witches and devils. Yeah. Because as I, I talked to uh, Dr. Cassandra Pfeiffer, she has, uh, much like your studies into to Navajo culture, uh, all that, but she's got a, a good solid background in Puritan literature. So I refer to the Puritans as the persecuted now persecutors who are easily and readily willing and able to persecute something physical and tangible like a witch or someone who is possessed by a demon. And you can't do that with a fairy, a hidden mm-hmm. person that kind of pops in and out of your vision and influences the world around you. So the idea of the fairy doctor or cunning women or cunning folk, I should say cunning folk in general, because it goes both ways, it's male or female Mm -hmm. uh, in the tradition in in the UK, weren't always necessarily fairy doctors. And in a lot of uh, stories that I've read, it is a a specialty in and of itself. But that idea of the cunning folk coming over here as herbal, herbal healers makes perfect sense. But what didn't come across was how you get rid of fairies. Here it was how you get rid of witches. Right. And a lot of the same tactics, techniques are used to get rid of both. You see silver. You see Mm -hmm. iron. They both tried to get rid of your milk and ruin your cheese. Yeah. You were, instead of being hag-ridden, there was a fairy wind. And so those those elements are very, very similar. It's just the, the, the... Names and places have been changed to protect the innocent. Well, uh, and, uh, stealing clothes. I mean, I, I know because that's part of the that's part of Appalachian witch lore. Don't you know? Don't leave your laundry out overnight because a witch will come and steal like your socks and then be able to do like a do like a, a work on you, right? Yeah. yeah. But I, I think that. I, but I think that that's. I think I read in. I think Ireland. I think that the fairies will steal your clothes if you leave them out. Like you shouldn't leave your shoes out overnight or something like that. It's one of the best things about fairies that I've come to love and hate about them is that they are good and bad. Yeah. <laughs> and you leave your clothes out at night. You don't leave your clothes out at night. You want to say hello. You don't say hello. Right. Um, it, it really, it, well, it's all, it's, it's regional too. Mm-hmm. 
Right. And it's all, it, it depends on where the stories come from. My thoughts on the butter though, and the dairy, it, it's the same thing as the herbal healing and, and the remedies. Everything has value. If your milk spoils, that is healthy fat that you need to, your body needs to process to do the hard labor of the day. So like the plowman's lunch is healthy animal fat and fiber and carbohydrates, because that's what your body's going to burn when you're working in the fields to provide for your family. So if your cheese goes and your milk goes and your cream goes, you don't have a readily available source of healthy fat. I'm I'm sure that the original settlers weren't counting their macros like people do today, (laughs) but if it goes wrong and you don't know why, well, you used to blame it on fairies and now you blame it on witches. Who can I blame? Mm-hmm. Well, fairies don't exist, so I'm going to blame her down the road because she looked yeah. at me and laughed. And there's there's a good folk tale of that too of the old woman who laughs, and I can't remember the name of the tale, where she's like, you know, laughing and sniggering, and oh, how's your how's your pig, Mister So and So? And then the pig dies like two days <laughs> later, and it turns out she was the witch, and she would come in and, and steal the farmer's hard work, his his mm-hmm. cheese and his vegetables and his bread. But that's that was why I always thought that the dairy was so important same as your children, same as your clothes, because you Mm -hmm. can't get them on Amazon in 1860s Appalachia or 1960s or even today. So in some places, it's that the understanding that we have to value the important things around us that allow us to do the work to provide for our families and for ourselves. And if those things are gone, we have to be able to fix them. And if we can't explain it, well, it's something, it's got to be something supernatural, right? Yeah. Um, when you guys mentioned it and you said, I don't know why it's always dairy. I just immediately went like, well, you need it to live. Right. And that's a, that's a good source of energy to work. Yeah. And I think, and it's fascinating because you're talking about, and you know, so let's read, read into that a little bit more because that, that is absolutely fascinating. The idea that, well, why did the milk go bad? Well, it's because you didn't do something. I mean, if, if we're talking practically, if it wasn't the fairies, right, and it wasn't right. the, the laughing old lady, you did something wrong, right? Mm-hmm. You you screwed up that production somehow, and now your milk is bad, and now what are you going to do about it, right? Right. You know, and I think that gets into, and it made me think about, I, I, I pushed this idea of, oh, sort of like, you know, we talk about like hauntology and haintology and all that stuff, but how, about what is the a fancy college or what is an Appalachian hermeneutics, right? How do, how do Appalachians? Sorry, hold uh, on. I have to, uh, my brain just flew out of the back of my, okay. <laughs> my head there. So if you could define hauntology and hermeneutics, did I okay. say that right? Just yeah. so, because a lot of people aren't going to know. I certainly yeah, didn't. I, and I'm, I'm, I'm bad about that. So that's, <laughs> it's perfectly fine. That's why I do the show because making it approachable, it's probably very approachable to people with your fancy, you know, 50 cent words. <laughs> yes. I just like to, you know, I like to make sure that I get the, you know, I get the most out of my PhD. So it's like, <laughs> so, I'm, and all I've really got is the word hermeneutics. <laughs> yeah. But, the, but a hauntology is, um, again, going back to Derrida, it's a, it's a way of understanding. Um, oh, it's, it's a way of understanding time to where to, to exist is to be haunted. So, so we're, we're, we are, um, we, we live in a world where we're, we're driven in the present by absences in our past. And so you get into this idea of like nostalgia. 
sort of a thing. It's like I I miss I miss this about I miss Spud Run where where we started, right? Right. And so and so um, Spud Run is this haunting absence in in my life. Ever since we left, I am haunted by not being there, and it, and that's what causes me to make certain decisions. You know, based on and yep. again, I, I think there's that there's the uh, Mircio Iliade who is a uh, he he wrote a lot of stuff about mythology, but he talks about the myth of the eternal return, and I and I mm -hmm. take that I take that literally. This is one of those ways where you know we can we can play with stuff, but like if if uh, if if a myth is not is just a, any kind of story that the, it's not that there's a lie about the eternal return. It's that we can, I, I can only return to Spud Run in my stories by telling you about it or telling anybody right. that, or, or writing about it. And so, so that's hauntology is that what are, what are those, what are those absences um, in our life that, that direct our, uh, the way that we make yeah. decisions in those like stories the, that. Well, the idea that our, our present is always influenced by our right. past, the stories. Right. So Spud Run, I have, you know, everything that I grew up with in Ohio, mm -hmm. especially the, the farmer side that influenced decisions and ways of thought, behaviors today in the now. Right. And even like I remember when I, I, I tweeted that, you know, my son got into Kent State and you tweeted and said, oh, I went to Kent State. I wonder if such and such restaurant is yeah, still or Mike's bar is place still, is still Mike's there, place yeah. is Mike's place still there. So we are like so. And, and, and I think our lives are full of that. It's one of the things that, you know, Derrida was good at was making us aware of these of these of these weird sort of micro turns that we um that we carry around with us that we're just not aware of. Yeah. But anyway, so so that's hauntology in a nutshell. And, and um then hers the, who's this Herman fellow you mentioned? Oh, her, yeah, hermeneutics. It's just it's the, it's a, it's a it's a strategy for reading, you know. It's like what well, how do you know are you are you a, a literalist or or whatever? And so I mm -hmm. so I, I try to understand like so this is where I guess it. So what is so this idea of being of being purposeful and realizing that there's so much at stake? And I think for me, that is that is a a a, a very very traditional Appalachian way of understanding. Sorry, it goes back to what I, I said at the beginning, making me realize how serious the story is, right? And that we should treat mm -hmm. that story with respect. And you think about it, like you know especially like I grew up, like, um, like my grandparents and, and my great grandparents and those, those great aunts and uncles, these were, these were, they were fun people, but they are also deadly serious people, right? Yeah. They understood the seriousness that goes into the enterprise of living. And so there was a lot about, you know, where, knowing where the poison ivy was, knowing where the, what, what, what particular kinds of plants attracted what particular kind of poison, poisonous snake. Yeah. You know? And so and so there's this idea of, of reading the landscape, you know, understanding, you know, the, the quote unquote hermeneutics of nature. Right. It's like you don't right. you don't go into the blackberries because that's where the copperheads will be. But you don't want to then go into like, you know, where all the, the where the, the if there are a bunch of dead trees, because that's where the rattlesnakes will be. Right. So there's this right. there's this. So so there's this there's a way to read. And I think then. I see that coming into the way that we read stories and understand stories. It's that same seriousness. It's and and it, because there's a lot. It's not our, our milk isn't going to spoil, but our but our brain will. Right? We won't be able to make right. make those connections. And I think I, this is uh, this is going to be one of those things where I'm going to I I'm just now starting to think of it. It's not going to go as far as I want it to. But I think that there's also a lot of talk about like you know well. Um, education isn't um, education isn't valued in Appalachia. I mean that's one of those stereotypes. 
but mm-hmm. but I can't. But I worked when I was when I was coming up, and I would and I worked in a I worked in a glass plant, and I worked in a vinyl siding factory, and that's the way that I paid my way through college. You know, these were guys with high school, men and women both with high school educations, but all of them all had a paperback in their lunchbox. Oh, you know? wow, yeah. So, so, so the idea that, you know, oh, well, you're going, you're going to go to college. Well, that's kind of a waste of time as they get out their 300 page Stephen King book to read at the, at the, at the break table. On your lunch right? break. Yeah. Right. So, so these were, these are incredibly literate people. The, the people that I grew up with at my Appalachia, incredibly literate, um, incredibly curious, student, very much students, you know, because even though that they might not have seen a value in college, they wanted to know what I was learning. And if I, if I said something that interested them, they wanted to know all about it and they had something to give back. Yeah. And so, and so, so I think, but I think then I think what's missing, I think is what, where we missed the mark and, and we misread that is when, we don't we don't link that input that the the idea that that education needs to be linked to like vocation and that kind of stuff i think that that's where that disconnect happens in appalachia but i think but i but i but i think that in appalachia there is that that education you know in quotes it should be a you know if, if that's approached with a seriousness you know and and to that enterprise of living then i think that um you're in a you're that's a different ball game that's a mindset yeah. that that uh that i think most appalachians would be familiar with right it's like mm-hmm. you're I, I need to learn this job i need to learn that you know it's like approach because this is like you were saying this is how this is how i make my living i can't even remember i said that to a grad professor one time <laughs> when, when i was working on my phd it was like my first year my first year of my phd and um and i forget i even forget how it happened but i'm in his office and he was giving me a dress down and i said uh, oh i know because he said something about he wanted to i was supposed to turn in a talking draft of a speech and so i gave him an outline and he wanted like like something that I was going to read and I didn't understand like what the, so I got a B minus and I'm just like, if you know exactly what you want, then you need to say exactly what you want because this isn't funny to me. This is how I'm going to support my family. <laughs> That's a very hillbilly thing to say. You're right. This isn't just some, I'm not just here having a nice time, right? This is, this is learning a skill and a craft that I'm going to use to support my family. And I think that's when you know you start seeing education devalued is when it's just presented as something whimsical right <laughs> or, but going back to that but i think that going back to that seriousness of of you know when does when does witchcraft happen metaphorically it's when we are not um when we're not uh, careful right yeah. with the milk with the with, with where our clothes are where we leave things well and that's where divination too comes in when when so much of your life cannot be wasted you know, this is, right. I need to know because I don't have time or life or anything to waste. Love divinations, crop and, and weather divination, thing like that. It's it's used in hopes to ensure that this will thrive mm-hmm. and produce and reproduce in the case of like wedding and pregnancy divination, things like that. Because so much is left up, we would say left up to God or the gods but it's left up to chance or fate or whatever you want to call it because there's no time to mess around. This is no BS. This is my life and my livelihood. So right. I will take a lock of my, my uh, lover's hair and wrap it in clay in a handkerchief and then jump nine railroad ties to ensure that, that he or she is true to me because I don't have time to mess around. And that's one of the things that I've always found fascinating is that I don't want to say stubborn, but it kind of is like you were saying with your, your professor and everything. Like, Mm -hmm. I need to know this. 
Yeah. There is no room for mistake. There is no room for wasted time. And a lot of, we, we take all that for, for granted now. Mm-hmm. Like immediacy culture, everything is, I can get it right now. I can get it right now. Working for it and understanding the value of it so that, yes, I am going to milk the cow at a full moon or a new moon or whatever it is before or after a thunderstorm. It's all of these very, it's contradictory, but it worked for one person or one family. It will work for another because they couldn't afford to not have food that day. And so a lot of the witch lore is a threat from the outside. And that's Mm -hmm. a lot of of when it comes down to not the the folk healers of that practice, but the the hainty witch is a threat of the unknown and the outside. Yeah. And it is a threat to your inability to put up with BS. I've got to get this done. And I don't need someone knocking at my door and taking cheese from me. Cause I need it. Yeah. You know, and ghost witches. Um, that's interesting. Cause I, I've written, I've been writing lately about the idea of, of ghost tricksters and premonitions yeah. and the way that those fit into how uh, Appalachian stories uh, help us structure and understand our place in time. And I, and, and that's, that's interesting because um, these things that intrude on our present state and then how we, how we negotiate them and, and again, that's fascinating. The idea of wasted of, of wasting time uh, by I don't know ignoring them and or the lack of purposefulness. But that's yeah, that's well, I'm and, have and, to think uh, about that. Industrialization takes a lot of that too, and immediacy begins to take. Well, immediacy becomes at the, the beginning of agriculture, but also civilizations and then industrialization. So the respect for the individual items that you need to survive tends to diminish or has diminished over time and is replaced with immediacy. The toaster breaks, you throw it away and go buy a new one for 20 bucks at Walmart, which takes you five minutes to walk to, as opposed to my great grandmother, if she even had a toaster, if it broke, she would fix it. And that thing would still run today. And it could also, this kind of ties into storytelling too, because how are you going to know when to pick your crops? How are you going to know when to milk your cows? How are you going to know how to make cream, how to make cheese through story, through oral tradition? Yeah. And I think, and that was, and, and that was one of the, to, to go back to when we were talking about the uh, Navajo's uh, things, the idea of storytelling as a, as a, uh, as a, as a structuring principle in your thought process, right? I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's, uh, th- that's their idea, that ho- their whole idea of ceremony is it revolves around this idea of story and how that's supposed to you know, uh, structure you to get out of a jam. And I, and I think what you're saying, I think that's true. I think we see that then true also in Appalachia, that that's, you're right. It's like, there'll be that story about the one person who didn't do something right. Mm -hmm. Or the person who, or, you know, like in my family, it's like, you know, the, the year that the snow got, um, all the way up to the second floor of the house, you know, but that was okay because we had canned a lot that year. Grandma just had an idea. You know? Yeah. And so and so then that becomes a story about, um, you know, being prepared. But because you had talked about COVID, we had, I can't remember if that if we were recording or not when you're no, talking I think about that COVID was before. Yeah. OK, but but even that it's like so. So when COVID happened, you know, here we all sat, you know, and it was like, what are we going to do? You know, and and um, and everybody's response to it was slightly different. You know, some some people were were were, you know, hardcore you know, uh, quarantiners, some not so much, blah, blah, blah. So when I started, when, when, it, when it all happened and it was like that first week or so when we were sitting around, I was thinking about my grandma uh, when there was the, the polio epidemic in the 50s. 
Mm-hmm. And so, um, and this was, and so they didn't have the vaccine yet or whatever. And, and so I, but I can remember my grandma would always tell that story and she would say, and so we just stopped going into town. And if we, and if we couldn't, and if we couldn't get it on the farm, if we couldn't eat, you know, cause they had a garden, all that stuff, they ate their own food, they ate their own animals, the whole, you know, all of that, they chickens and things. And my, cause my grandma said, you can't get it because it can't get in the holler. Yeah, you know, and so and so essentially, my grandma was pro quarantine, hardcore quarantine, <laughs> right? And so and so, I remember, like, I was sitting right where I am now, looking out this window. I'm looking at now, and and thinking, like, what are we? You know, how am I gonna how am I gonna get through this? You know, this is because worrying about my kids and everything else. And and I remember my grandma saying that it can't it can't find you in the holler. And I thought, well, it can't find me in my house either. <laughs> you know, right. and so so that story that she told about something that she went through even though my grandma is dead now, but you know, but that story, it, all of a sudden it came out of nowhere. It came mm-hmm. up when the, when the, when I was where, where I, where I was, where I am, that story manifested itself at the appropriate time in out of my memory. So I could apply it to my current situation. And the, to your point, what should I do? And it's not like not saying that that's what everyone should have done, no. but according to my story, my story was a mm-hmm. hard quarantine story. And, and then um, going back to that idea of like the norns and all of that kind of thing, the idea of the past as not just being something that's done and over, but that, but that, but that word weird, meaning something close to like inheritance or debt. Yeah. So the fact that I remembered that story that my grandmother kept my, you know, dirt where everyone else was getting polio, you know, my grandma kept my uncles and aunts alive and my mother. And so that's a debt I owe her. So my hard quarantine wasn't anything about politics it wasn't about fauci that was a debt that was a mental a mental move i made based on a story to repay a debt that my grandmother had done right yeah and that's and i think that too is also the power of folklore the power of story to to manifest that into the should based yeah. on your community based on your family history all of that kind of stuff that is a wonderful place i think we should end <laughs> right there that's okay. a a good ending um, well, also, cause I don't want to take up too much of your time here. You've okay. been so kind and, and I do appreciate that. Um, oh, this has been great. Thank you. Yeah. And, uh, if, if you wouldn't mind letting folks know where they can find you, how they can read your stuff and see all your, your clever tweets and, and whatnot. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I am. Um, I'm most active on Twitter when I'm not like doing something else, but it's, um, it's at Ed Karshner, which is easy to remember. That's my same handle for Instagram. Um, if you want to read, uh, like I said, I've got um, I've got several articles uh, about folklore that is on uh, ReckonReview.com, and um, and if you go to if you go to my contributor page on ReckonReview.com, it also will list some of my other publications. I'm I'm in a couple of an- I've been in a few anthologies um, with my folk horror. And like I said, I've got a story called The Debt that is coming out in Still Magazine or Still the Journal. That'll be out in the fall. And I have um, a story called Dark Water, which will be um, in the anthology Modern Gothic by Fly on the Wall Press. And that comes out uh, October 11th. So those are my two big my two big upcoming ones. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, all I'm going to include all that in the show notes so folks can click on that and and support you that way readily available links in the clever show notes area dr karshner thank you so much again for popping by the show today i really appreciate it oh thank you aaron it's been a it's been a pleasure thank you very much 
Thanks again to Dr. Ed Karshner for coming by the Appalachian Folklore Podcast and indulging my curiosity of Appalachian folklore and and having such a wonderful conversation. And I hope you all enjoyed it because I definitely did. And I've been talking to Ed before and after all of this. And we agree that this was a a wonderful conversation and really do genuinely hope that you all enjoy it as much as we did. Should your interest inspire you to want to support the podcast you can always pop by ko-fi.com slash app folklore pod and as everyone else says for the price of a coffee you can chip in a little donation here of your hard-earned cash to support the podcast i'm always very grateful anyone and everyone i talk to about it i was like holy crap people actually like the show enough to give me some of their hard-earned money to say thank you and it is beautiful. It's a wonderful thing. And, and I never thought I'd be able to, to say that, but I am. And I do feel that way. And thank you all for all of your donations. It really does help. It, it makes me uh, get through the long, hard days at work to just see the Ko-Fi or coffee page alert pop up with some new information that someone has donated or, or left a comment or a review. So thank you all very much. I do appreciate that. You can always reach out to me through Twitter or X or whatever it's called now or email and send me your stories. Tell me how you feel about the podcast. Uh, Might try this new threads thing that seems to be all the rage now. Uh, All the kids are talking about that. It's hot on the streets. Who knows? Maybe I'll have time for it. But anyway, as always, I do appreciate y'all listening and stopping by. And until next time, y'all be good. Thanks for spending your time with me here at the Appalachian Folklore Podcast. If you'd be so kind as to rate and review this show on whatever platform you use, I'd be much obliged as it helps spread the word. You can email me at appfolklorepod at gmail.com and visit my website shows.acast.com afp. You can find me at appfolklorepod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also find me on Mastodon at appfolklorepod.com at thefolklore.cafe. Thanks to Jonathan Ochoa for the AFP cover art. You can find his work on Instagram at Inkwell Graphic Design. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>